Thank you. As well as teaching us about prayer, the Bible gives us some wonderful examples of people who prayed and God who heard and listened. And I think what we'll do right now is just go to one of those, the one that's been on my heart really since this prophetic word has uh, landed with us and we've been wrestling and praying into it. And that's in 1 Chronicles chapter 17. So if you do have a Bible, I'd encourage you to find it. It's really great to read the Bible as well as listening to it. I feel it goes in by stereo if you're seeing it and hearing it. If you haven't, though, it will come up here on the screen. I know you've got notes. I couldn't get the whole of 1 Chronicles 17 in your notes uh, because I've given you the prophetic word there as well. So uh, look on the screen or in your Bibles. It's uh, a whole chapter, but I think it would be a chapter that would do us some good. If you're still struggling to find it, Chronicles is about a third of the way into the Bible. Don't confuse it with Corinthians, which is also 1 and 2, which is in the last third of the Bible. This is 1 Chronicles chapter 17. Are you sitting comfortably? After David was settled in his palace, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent. Nathan replied to David, Whatever you have in mind, do it, for God is with you. But that night the word of God came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. You are not the one to build me a house to dwell in. I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought Israel up out of Egypt to this day. I have moved from one tent site to another, from one uh, dwelling place to another. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of the leaders whom I commanded to shepherd my people, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I'll make your name like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own, and no longer be disturbed." Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also subdue all your enemies. I declare to you that the Lord will build a house for you. When your days are over and you go to be with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. I will never take my love away from him as I took it away from your predecessor. I will set him over my house and my kingdom forever. His throne will be established forever. How long will it last? Forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. That's the prophetic word. Halfway. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and he said, Who am I, Lord God? And what is my family? that you have brought me this far. And as if this were not enough in your sight, my God, you have spoken about the future of the house of your servant. You, Lord God, have looked on me as though I were the most exalted of men. 
what more can David say to you for honoring your servant? For you know your servant, Lord. For the sake of your servant and according to your will, you've done great things and made known all these great promises. There is none like you, Lord, and there is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. And who is like your people, Israel, the one nation on earth whose God went out to redeem a people for himself and to make a name for yourself and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations from before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt. You made your people Israel your very own forever. And you, Lord, have become their God. And now, Lord, let the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house be established forever. Do as you promised so that it will be established and that your name will be great forever. Then people will say, the Lord Almighty, the God over Israel, is Israel's God and the house of your servant David will be established before you. You, my God, have revealed to your servant that you will build a house for him. So your servant has found courage to pray to you. You, Lord, are God. You have promised these good things to your servant. Now you have been pleased to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, Lord, have blessed it, and it will be blessed forever. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord, for the word of God as we've been reminded this morning that it is truth. It is the whole truth. And we're going back this morning, Lord, to the original, to the authentic, to the thing you've said. And we're putting our hope in it. I pray right now by your spirit. Would you enlighten us? Would you reveal to us your plan, your will, and your way? And Lord, would we respond well? Would we respond in faith? Would we respond in prayer? Would we respond in action in Jesus' holy name? Amen and amen. Amen. Thank you. What have you been doing over the last few weeks? The Chinese have gone to the far side of the moon. The uh, Americans have sent pictures back of Ultima Thule which I'm told is four million miles away. You'll see a picture behind me. The Canadians, with their new kind of intergalactic-y kind of, you know, telescopic thing, have heard some mysterious radio bursts from a galaxy, they reckon, 1.5 billion light years away. There's a picture of it at the bottom. But you and I have something better than that. We have an awesome opportunity to dialogue with God, the creator, the sustainer of all this space stuff with the whole cosmos at his hands. We have an opportunity to engage with him, the eternal, the divine being that is beyond space and time. You know, prayer isn't talking to yourself. Prayer isn't about offloading to the universe. Prayer isn't appeasing the spirits or a monologue to a passive God. Through Jesus, prayer is a profound privilege. Yes, to develop our relationship with God by listening, by talking to him, but also to see God's power released by asking and receiving from him. 
The passage we've looked at today is a, is a fascinating and really important one in the overarching storyline and narrative of the whole Bible. Tucked away there in 1 Chronicles, may have come across it before, may not. It's a major kind of point in the whole plan that God has enacted. But it's also just a lovely example of someone who prayed in response to hearing God's word through a prophetic uh, word. And as you've heard already, we're, we're, we're inspired by the prophetic, as I've put in the notes there, and we want to look into it, and we want to respond well to it. And we're looking at the first table leg in our responsibility. Let me tell you, and I think this uh, passage we looked at today illustrates it wonderfully, prayer is always the right response to prophecy. And sometimes it's to do something. Prayer is always the right response to hearing from God, and sometimes we're to do something. I love being in King's Church. I love our openness to the gifts of the Holy Spirit and the Spirit's presence amongst us, as illustrated this morning. I love the fact that we're open to hearing from God through the prophetic. But there's a responsibility that comes with it. We're taught in our New Testaments that as we hear from God through other people, we're to weigh carefully what is said, we're told in 1 Corinthians 14. We're to treat prophecies not with contempt, but to test them all and to hold on to what is good and to let go and reject every kind of evil, we're told in 1 Thessalonians 5. So responding to the prophetic in prayer is essential. If we're to do that well, if we're to fulfill that kind of instruction in handling prophetic words well, and I think David has modeled it for us. Sometimes it's also right to do some stuff. Typically, prepare yourself. Get yourself ready. Sometimes that's appropriate, depending on the prophetic word. And if you read on, if you want to, in the coming weeks from 1 Chronicles 17, you'll find, after a couple of chapters, the rest of 1 Chronicles is David getting things ready. He now knows he's not the one to build this temple. His son Solomon will be, but he gets stuff organized. He secures the site. He recruits the servers that are going to build, that are going to maintain temple worship. He gets the materials and the money together. He knows he's not going to do anything with them, but he wants to set it up so that they're ready to go and are encouraged to do so. Let's just look at verse 16 right in the heart of this passage I read which is the kind of commentary of David's response. Then King David, having heard this, went in and sat before the Lord. He went in to the tabernacle, the tent he'd set up in Jerusalem where he'd placed the Ark of the Covenant, having returned it from foreign lands, and was setting up kind of worship with sung worship and instruments. And he went in there and he sat before the Lord, and he said, he prayed. And then we get the content of his prayer. I'm grateful to God that he's put David's prayers in the Bible for our inspiration, not mine. <laughs> it's quite a thing, isn't it, to get something so intimate, so personal, uh, inscribed here for, for us, for all these generations later. Because my prayers might be a little bit more wandering. You might not follow the flow too much. They might get interrupted with some of the to-dos of the day. But for David, we get this wonderful example of his interaction with God. And you see, prayer, I think, if you know anything about David, we get a lot of info in the Bible about him. 
Prayer was David's default. He, he went to prayer almost in every situation. And I think if you compare him with his predecessor, who gets referenced in the prophetic word here, Saul, King Saul, that uh, possibly they both got about as much wrong as each other. I haven't done the analysis, I haven't actually totted it up, but they both make mistakes along the way. But what's the difference? Well, I, I reckon the significant difference is this response that David has built into his life. He comes back to God. He turns to God. He returns to God. He comes before God quickly, sincerely, with intensity, and reaches into God and prays. And Saul, not so, not so. See, God's assessment of David, we know this infamously, that he was a man after God's heart. That was his point of difference. That's why he, he rose David up at the expense of Saul. And that sounds quite nebulous to us, doesn't it? Someone after God's heart, you know, what, what is that? You know, it seems a little bit intangible, but I think we get a little window on it here. Verse 1, he had this project idea, this building of a temple idea, and first he went and consulted the, the prophet. He sought counsel to see if there's anything from God that would help him to kind of discern this. And okay, the initial message was, go for it. You're all right. God's with you. But then there's this other prophetic word. And now it's a bit of more of a stop, not quite yet, not you, no. But still, he comes back into prayer and sits before the Lord. I think it just illustrates perhaps something of what it is to be someone after God's heart. What a person is in their prayer closet is what they are. Just to update slightly Robert Murray McChaney's quote. And you might think, oh, well, of course, David, pray. who wouldn't pray in a scenario like this? But actually, I think David's response is still quite surprising. And maybe not everybody would have responded in the same way as he did. Firstly, he was busy. He was a very busy man. He's referred to throughout this passage as simply David until we get to verse 16. Then we're reminded, then King David. Ah, king. Any kings here today? Any queens? Any monarchs? Any prime ministers? Anyone ruling over nations going through tricky things politically? I imagine their life is a little bit stressful and busy. And sure enough, it would have been for David too. This nation was still quite fledgling. It was still trying to secure its borders. There were enemies on every side. And David had been at the forefront as a warrior, really, just kind of fighting them off and leading the troops. He was really into worshipping God, and he was prolific as a songwriter. I mean, he must have had a to-do list as long as your arm. However, stealing the title of a book by Bill Hybels, David was too busy not to pray. He was too busy not to pray. And he got that. Yeah, we can pray. The wonder of it is we can connect with God throughout the day, even in the busyness. Arrow prayers. Thank you, God. Help, God. Please, God. We can do that. And it's real. It's genuine. And God loves it. He's with us all of the time. But David got the fact that there's nothing like devoting the space, the time, the inclination to be alone with God. And even though he was king, he went off. He went off by himself and sat before the Lord and prayed. He was settled. Another reason why prayer wasn't necessarily an automatic response. Anybody would have prayed. No, he was settled. Verse 1 again, he tells us, David was settled in his palace. 
Can you imagine being settled in your palace? Going around some of the streets around here, I wonder whether some people are settled in their palaces. We are told, if you look onto the next couple of uh, chapters, that David still led a few more battles, although I'm told that chronologically those battles had already happened by chapter 17. So this was a time of peace for David and the nation. The, the flurry of activity and the many battlefronts had kind of calmed down now. And he had a palace built for himself, and he was in it, sitting comfortably. Perhaps it's when life is hunky-dory, when the stress levels have been able to drop a little bit, when we're sitting comfy, thank you very much, I'm all right, Jack, that prayer loses something of its intensity. Not so with David. And thirdly, God has said no. David's desire for a temple seemed to be a good one, a noble one. He had inquired of God. He'd got the thumbs up. And now God had put the kibosh on the whole project. No, stop. You're not the one. Really was the bad news of the prophetic word. And sometimes when you get bad news and good news, you don't kind of hear the good news because you're focused on the bad news. What, not? What, but this was a good idea, but Nathan said it was all right. He said that you'll be with me in this. No, you're not the one. Stop. Sometimes God's answers to our prayers are there. We don't, we're not ready to hear them. And sometimes his answer is a no or a stop or a wait or a not you. And it was for him there. And I think I'm just impressed by David's mature handling of that. I'm challenged by it. It's refreshing as well. So, you see, God isn't a genie in our lamp ready to grant us three wishes. No, he's rather our Father in heaven who's ready to give us only good things as his children ask him. So how does David overcome these obstacles to praying? What's fueling this, this prayer life that is so dynamic that we've seen evidence of here? What is the secret, David, for a growing culture of prayer, which is something as a church we've stated we're keen to see developed? He's wowed by God. That's it. He is wowed by God. He is overwhelmed by God's grace, his kindness and love. Just breaking down the prayer that David prayed from verse 16 into a few parts. The first third, really, I would summarize, in essence, is him saying, Wow, God, what grace to me, what grace to my family. Just read a little bit, come up behind me perhaps, verse 16 and a half. Who am I, Lord God, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? And if this were not enough in your sight, my God, you have spoken about the future of the house of your servant. Who am I? Lord God, you have looked on me as though I were the most exalted of men. And others' translations would suggest you've looked on me as if, as if I were the son of God, so gracious and benevolent and loving and kind have you been. Who am I? We're quick to sometimes ask the question, why me? Why me? Why is all this happening to me? And often it's with a negative connotation. Sorry if you're not into football, but there is a footballing analogy. A few years ago, Mario Balotelli used to play for Manchester City. He, he rolled up his T-shirt. He had another T-shirt underneath. Having scored a goal, said, why me? Why always me? 
bit of kind of glum kind of expression, I think, on his face. Because things had gone wrong. His house had been on fire. His three million pound mansion was lost. Why me? And often we're the similar, why are bad things happening to me? Well, in Mario's case, it was that he did light a firework indoors. So maybe there was a kind of reason if he looked for it. But anyway, for him, it just meant another thing. I guess, but what, why? It's a why me, but it's a different one here. It's a positive one. It's why me? Why is God so benevolent to me? Why has he chosen me? How come? What have I done? I've brought nothing to the party but my sin. And God is just showering me with grace upon grace upon grace. That's the place he's in right there in the first third of his prayer. The second third of the prayer continues. He's wowed at God's grace towards God's people. Israel, verse 20, verse 21. And who is like your people Israel? The one nation on earth whose God went out to redeem a people for himself. Who are we? Your people, the church, Lord. It's so amazing. You've gone out of your way, God, to send Jesus to die for us, to raise again for us, that we would be redeemed, that we would be somehow bought by your blood so that we can come into your presence even though we don't deserve to, haven't earned it, and we can live forever in the life of God. Amen? He's redeemed a people, a whole people from across the face of the earth, from every ethnic group and language. Hallelujah. He's got something of that. Wow. What have you knitted me into? What is this family of God that I'm a part of? There's a lovely detail, I think, in verse 16 again, that says that David sat before the Lord. It's very rare in Scripture. It's an odd saying. People don't sit before the Lord very much in the Bible. What's going on here? Is it just because he's a bit half-hearted? Is he just a little bit, you know, lacking in reverence? No, I think rather he's overcome with the grace of God. He staggers into the tent before the Ark of the Covenant where God dwells, and he can't even stand any longer. Such is his overwhelming sense of God's love and grace towards him and his family and the people of God. He's resting in it. He can't stand anymore. He's overwhelmed. Being overwhelmed by God's grace, I suggest to you, is the best fuel for prayer. Being overwhelmed by grace, God's grace for you and his people, is the best fuel for prayer. Now, prayer is a mystery, isn't it? It's a paradox. God, who is sovereign, has a will. Yet that's going to be released through people praying. Don't know how that all works, but I can accept that both are true. That God is able and our prayer makes a difference. I know that is true. You don't have because you don't ask. Said James at the end of our Bibles, chapter 4, verse 2. Prayer is stressed over and over again in the New Testament as a vital prerequisite. Say after me, vital prerequisite. Vital prerequisite, it's a big word, for the release and experience of God's power. Our friend, our founder as a family of churches, Terry, said this, the promises instruct us what to ask and lead us to pray believingly. 
We could argue that prayer is simply fellowship with God, however wonderful that is, I add. But Jesus frequently spoke of prayer as a context in which we ask in order to receive. And again, I believe David's example here is illustrative of that very dynamic. David, in the last third of his prayer, asks God stuff. Come and do, God, what you said you were going to do. Really? Do we have? Yes, it's a prerequisite. It's vital. And the promises instruct us what to pray. So let's get to verse 23 here. And now, Lord, let the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house be established forever. Do as you promised. Come and do it. Come and set up this eternal king in his eternal kingdom from my family line. Come and build this temple that you're talking of. He's asking, come and do the very thing you said you're going to do. And I think that's encapsulated really for us right in the heart of the Lord's Prayer. Right in the heart of the Lord's Prayer, which we looked at about a year ago together over some weeks, has got this phrase, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's not like a caveat. That's not like a little asterisk and a footnote in our prayers just in case they don't come to pass. Well, if it's your will, Lord, it's not meant to be used like that. This is a promise that as we pray for the things in line with the word of God, the ultimate truth, as Jane encouraged us to remember this morning, as we pray for the things that God has inspired us with, with these prophetic words that we've tested and weighed as you've got in your hands, then we can pray them back to God, and then his power is released. That's how it works. So we get specific. We get detailed. We pray in line with the things we know about God and what he's said. David wouldn't have prayed this prayer unless God had revealed this to him. But now he can pray it, because he now knows what's in line with God's will. Just that prophetic word that came in our worship, God hears our cries. For some of us today, that is what you need to take away. God hears your cry. And it may be a cry of, of passion and rage and volume, or it may be a cry of pain and hurt and tears. God hears your cry, and he wants to hear your cry because he wants to come and answer and release his power and will through our prayers into reality. I do think that prayer sometimes can have a bit of a poor image, but let me tell you, prayer is not for wimps. Not only for wimps. I feel like a wimp sometimes. It is for me. Prayer is not only for wimps. It's not only for the weak. Prayer is not only men. Prayer is not only for the women. Prayer is for warriors of all types, ages, and genders. The prophetic word and the celebration of God's grace that David received gave him this audacity to approach God with an outrageous request. Verse 25, you, my God, have revealed to your servant that you will build a house for him so your servant, talking about himself, has found courage to pray to you. Even David, the warrior king, 
The alpha male of Israel had to find courage from God to pray. And when he got it, wow, that changed the dynamic of his prayers. You see, prayer isn't a passive exercise. It doesn't use pathetic language. It's an act of war on the front line of God's advancing kingdom. Prayer needs a people of passion, saturated in the spirit with a dogged determination. Are you in? Some of you are with me. Prayer releases God's power on earth. It's the way it is. God wants us involved in it. God certainly answered David's request. David's dynasty did last. And if you see the dynasty's series, the nature program, David Attenborough over Christmas, great shots of lions and chimpanzees and other dog things I wasn't so passionate about. And, and then, the, oh, yeah, the... Yeah, the <laughs> The penguins, yeah. And it was all very fragile. Is their family going to survive another generation? Because they kind of like to put a narrative in there now, don't they? Um, Well, David understood the fragility of power, if you like, and dynastic rule. And uh, uh, like every other uh, kingdom on earth, his was as vulnerable as any until God spoke. Uh, I've read a couple of times in 2 Chronicles, as you read on about the future kings, that really his, his dynasty was hanging by a thread on at least a couple of occasions. All the heirs had been wiped out by one. Uh, once by the Arab raiders, another time by the queen. Mom had gone crazy and killed them all. But one was rescued by some quick-thinking aunt and her kind of priest husband. So a few times it looked dodgy. But David's prayer was being answered. The dynasty would continue. And ultimately, of course, this dynasty was fulfilled by Jesus. He is the answer to that prayer for an eternal house. I'd love just to read quickly to you some from verse 10 onwards, 10 and a half onwards. Uh, 11, when your days are over and you go to be with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. One of your own sons, I will establish his kingdom. He's the one who will build a house for me. I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father. He will be my son. I will never take my love away from him as I took it away from your predecessor. I will set him over my house and my kingdom forever. His throne will be established forever. Some of that is fulfilled by Solomon in the next generation. He does build a physical temple. And all goes well, and his son's after him. But this isn't all fulfilled by Solomon. And David knew it. David got something of it. That's why he was so wondered by the grace of God, because he was folding in his family lineage into the Messiah, into the king that would come and reign forever over an eternal kingdom. How could that be? He was overawed. It's a play on words. It works in English as well as it does in Hebrew. The word house. David wanted to build God a physical house. God promised to build David a dynastic house. And one that will be in there in eternity. Because in eternity, the, the reigning house won't be the Habsburgs or the Kennedys or the Khans or the Mings or the Windsors. No, it will be of David's line. That's why this passage gets referred to so many times in our New Testament, in pointing to Jesus. When the angel came to Mary, we got it just a few weeks ago, the virgin with child, not from a man. And the angel said, yeah, he's going he's to have the throne of his father, David. Because, of course, Mary was related by birth to King David, as was the adopted father of Jesus, Joseph. They both were 
Wow! He's going to have the throne of David. His kingdom will never end. That's what the angel announced, quoting these passages. That's why when Jesus was baptized and he came out of the water, there was an audible voice from heaven that said, you are my son, and I love you. You're the one in whom I love. Quoting this kind of passage, taking inspiration right from here. I'm reading through Acts at the moment. I've got to Acts chapter 7. It's a long chapter. Stephen, I know he's the first Christian martyr by stoning, so it's kind of, you know, quite important. But he goes into all this history, this summary of the Old Testament. Uh, and then they stone him at the end. He goes, what's going on here? By the way, it's a very good summary of the Old Testament. We've had one, a one-liner already from Dale. But if you want a little bit more, and you're not quite ready for the whole thing, go to, go to Acts 7. It's great. But he ends with this. He ends with this promise that there'll be one who comes. And he points to Jesus as being the fulfillment. And he says, God doesn't live in temples, not physical ones anyway. And they stone him on that. And he gets referenced in other places of the New Testament as well. Uh, as I wind up, I just want to speak to any of you this morning who uh, aren't a Christian. You're very welcome here. We love you coming. But I want to tell you about a kingdom that is here and is expanding. And you need to be in it, not out of it, because you can only be one or the other. A lot of us, a lot of the nation, understandably, are getting a little bit hot under the collar about whether we're in or out of Europe. I understand that. I have passions within it myself, but let's not remember, or forget rather, that the EU will come and the EU will go. Like all other kingdoms and powers and empires and hegemonic things in history, they've all come and they've all gone. Yet there is a kingdom, as I say, that's here already and is going to increase and expand and advance until it fills the whole earth. There's not going to be any room for any other kingdom or anyone else following another one other than our Lord and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. So the key question, however important it is about Europe, is are you in or are you out of the kingdom of heaven? Are you in or are you out of Jesus' kingdom? Because that's the only one that's going to last. And if you're in, it's because you've decided to be in now. And you decide to be in now by choosing to follow Jesus. And submitting to him as your king and leader and ruler and commander and chief and lord. Because he's with us, because he's alive, because he rose again. And there's no second referendum when you die. There's not a second chance to vote in or out. It's this life you have the opportunity to believe. And just to bring a few application points for those of us in the church here about prayer, I would encourage you to fuel your prayer life with God's grace. Do you want to grow in prayer in 2019? I trust you do. I do. Make a plan. It's good to have a plan. But if you plan anything, plan this. Plan to expose yourself and to saturate yourself in the grace of God. Plan that your prayer moments are going to start celebrating the grace of God. I think it will fuel your prayer life much more than, you know, your alarm clock or your determination or your scheduling of the day. I do start my day regularly thinking, Lord, what can I thank you for about yesterday? Five things, Lord, one, two, three, thank you. Grace for me yesterday, five times. Grace is for me today. I read my Bible before I pray often. You can do either thing. It might not work so well for you, but why do I do that? It's not because I'm, I'm a literary person. I'm not.